You know, prayer is an area that I really want to grow in. And I think if probably all of us are honest, we, we would say prayer, prayer is an area that we need to grow. Um, seems like every time things get difficult, that's when we, that's when we decide to pray. Um, but let me confess that I want to want to pray. Does that make sense? Not, not, just, not just that I need to pray, but I, I want to want to pray. And so I confess to you that I, I personally need a lot of growth in this area. I want to pray for the right things. I want to pray in the right way. I, I really want to find joy in just being with God in prayer. Does any of that resonate with you? Okay. Well, next Sunday, I want to begin a new series that we're calling Pray Big. Pray Big. Um, and I'm, I'm excited to grow in this together. Uh, every year we do uh, an emphasis on prayer, usually at the beginning of the year and then sometime close to when uh, school starts. And the reason is just to recenter, refocus. But um, this, I, I think, is going to be different. You know, I, I see all the time online prayer emojis and, and whatnot. And I just wonder how often we actually pray in those moments. Or do we just sort of, you know, post a, a thing or send a quick deal? Um, and I'm just tired of being that guy. And so um, I want to call us to be a people of prayer together. And that's what uh, this, this series is going to be about. All right, grab your Bibles. Let's go to the book of Genesis together. I'm going to be in Genesis this morning. So if you, if you don't know where that is, it's the easiest one to find. It's right in the beginning, the uh, very first book of the Bible. So if you don't know where to, uh, where to go, just go to the front and you'll find it eventually. Um, after Jesus resurrected from the dead and before he ascended into heaven, he gave what we now call the Great Commission to his disciples. He told them... Uh, I have all authority, therefore I want you to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you. And lo, I'll be with you always to the end of the age. This was what we call the Great Commission. These were Jesus' last words, and they are meant to be our first priority. So... It's why we are so determined right now to really uh, launch out new life groups. We're so determined to do it, not just because um, it's a program that would be helpful. And it's not a program. It's our plan to try to strategically obey Jesus' command. So our hope with life groups is that in those groups, you'll cultivate real relationship. And then we believe that real discipleship happens in real relationship. So this is our plan. We would love to see more and more people connect in life groups that will be launching in the next week or two. And I want to encourage you to jump in and be a part of those. Um, I sat at lunch this week with just a, a handful of men from our church. And, uh, you know, we were just eating Mexican food, dipping chip and salsa and just talking. And then we got to talking about um, work and life and these brothers started sharing some stories and I just listened as they shared stories about how they've been telling the gospel to their co-workers and just sharing the gospel and I'm just listening in on these conversations and I was so encouraged by their boldness 
I was inspired in my own life to be more intentional uh, with the gospel, to look for opportunities to be a witness for Jesus. And this is the kind of impact that we have on each other when we do life together, when we have real relationships with one another. We, we need relationship with one another. You guys agree? Like we need it. Need it. It's not a, um, a commodity that we can take or leave. Like you, you're made for relationship, made to be in community with people. We, we discovered that. Uh, we, we've discussed it anyway when we looked at the creation story a little bit a couple of weeks ago. Just sort of brushed over it. What we realized that when, when God made Adam and he was alone, God said about that. He said, this is not good, right? Well, then he makes Eve and brings Adam a wife. And he says, this is very good. And what we see is that we're actually made for life on life, human to human relationship. We're made for community. And it's a huge need. And yet it's one of our biggest challenges in life. And this is where I want to spend some time today. And I just want to ask the question, why are real relationships so hard? Why is it so hard? I think the answer is really simple. And then also broad. But the answer is this. Real relationship is hard because of sin. Just put it out there. Like, how many of you know that sin can cause some real problems in your life? (laughs) Anybody agree? Like, um, I mean, life can be going pretty well and then all of a sudden in a tailspin, right? Everything is out of whack and out of control. And it's because sin is not the way God has designed. I find in my own life that sometimes it's a bit like the, the life I'm living is like driving a car. And my car is really badly out of alignment. Anybody ever driven a car like that? And you're driving down the road and the minute you sort of relax your grip on the wheel, it starts to drift right off into the ditch or off into oncoming traffic. And there's this constant need to sort of keep a keep a grip on it because the default seems to be to to go off the rails. And that's the way sin is in our lives. Um, So when I'm talking about sin, I'm, I'm not just talking about moments of disobedience, although I am referring to those. I'm actually talking more about the residual effects of being a sinner and living in a broken world. The residual effects. So what what does it look like to actually live in a broken world and to be a a contributor to the brokenness? So I feel like today we need a, a closer look at the anatomy of sin. So that's what I've titled this message this morning. I want us to read together from Genesis chapter 3 when the very first sin happened and look at some of the fallout of what was what was happening, what was the result of sin. Would you stand with me as we read from God's word? We want to stand in honor of the scriptures. So we believe that scripture is inspired by God is inerrant, meaning is perfect and is sufficient. For all things. And so we want to read and honor his word. Genesis chapter three. Let's pick up the two verses just prior to this one. So remember, God made Adam, then he made Eve. Verse 24 of chapter two. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife 
They shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife, Adam and Eve, were both naked and were not ashamed. Really ends chapter 2 with this beautiful picture of a union of husband and wife and how there's just this perfect community. No fear, no shame, none of that. And then we hit chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. And so I hid myself. And he said, well, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Simple question. The man said, that woman you gave me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Well, then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, that serpent deceived me and I ate. Let's pray. Lord God, your word is true. In a world of lies and deception, we know you are the source of truth, reliable, trustworthy, and that you love us. You want nothing but good for us. So we trust you today. Open our ears to hear your word. Open our eyes to walk in faith together as a people redeemed by the grace of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let's talk about sin. What is the anatomy of sin? What makes it up? I want us just to break this down together. I'm just going to give um, some, some really short bullet points that I hope you'll write down and think through. The first most important piece of the anatomy of sin is this. Sin is against God. Against God. If you remember the story of David, King David and Bathsheba. 2 Samuel chapter 11 begins this way. At the time when kings go off to war, King David was walking on the roof. He was in the wrong place at the wrong time. When he was there, he saw a beautiful woman and he wanted her. He took her for himself, even though she was another man's wife. 
Well, she became pregnant, and then a mess began to unfold, and David began uh, running around trying to cover his problem, trying to hide his sin, trying to cover his sin, trying to do anything he could to keep it from coming to light. There was no way to cover it. Once it was finally exposed and David repented of his sin, he began to beg God that he would keep the baby alive. Unfortunately, that did not happen. And after all of that, David writes Psalm 51. And Psalm 51 is a beautiful psalm, but it's a psalm of repentance. It's a psalm of confession of sin. And in that psalm, David says these words, and I think it's super important that we hear this because he said, Lord, against you and you alone have I sinned. And for me, that's pretty troubling. Because you think through all the situations that happened, right? David took a woman into his chamber that's not his wife. It's actually another man's wife. So surely David sinned against this woman and against her husband. Well, then when it was found out, he brought her husband home from war, got him really drunk and hoped that he would go home and spend time with his wife. So surely David sinned against her husband again. He tried a second time, got him drunk again, sent him home, hoping that he would be with his wife. But he he wouldn't because he was an honorable man. He wouldn't be with his wife while his men were off war fighting. So David sent him back to battle with a note in hand that says to his commanding officer to lead him to the heat of battle and then back away so that he would be killed. So surely David sinned against Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. Surely David sinned against Joab, the, the commander who was ordered to do, to execute basically murder on one of his soldiers. I'm just thinking through the paradigm like David has sinned against a lot of people, right? But what we're seeing from the Psalm of David and from Genesis in particular is that sin at its core, at the centerpiece of what sin is, it is against God. Sin is an offense against the holy God. Look, at, look with me, if you will, at Genesis chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. Verse, verse 15, actually. The Lord God took the man... And put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. What we see in this passage is God is giving both permission and prohibition. Hey, you can eat of any tree in the garden. Whatever you want, the trees are here. I've made fruit on these trees. It's good for you. Eat of any tree you want to eat of. Permission. Except this tree. If you eat of this tree, you will die. I command you, do not eat of this tree. Prohibition. So we have God who's giving both permission and prohibition. And what we realize is that sin at its essence is a rebellion against God's authority. It's to recognize that God has the the power to actually say, you have permission here, you have prohibition here. And what man does in the face of authority when we sin is we say, 
I will do what I want to do. What we must recognize from the Genesis account is that God has the authority to speak to us this way. He's our creator. I mean, verse 15 actually says he placed Adam in the garden. I don't know how that, you know, in my mind, uh, it works like a cartoon where he picks up this little man. He's like squirming and puts him down in the garden, you know. And then he says, you can eat of any tree you want to eat. And I'm just thinking through like this, this huge God, like Paul Bunyan type character, speaking to this little miniature man and saying, eat, eat whatever you want. But if you eat of this one, you'll die. So do not eat of it. And the audacity of little bitty man to rebel against the authority of God, creator God. But sin at its essence is rebellion against his authority. It's also a rejection of his law. We see in that same passage that God gives a command, his very first and only command. Do not eat of this tree. But sin, it's a rejection of God's law. It says God forbids it. So what? So what? I'll do what I want to do. Now, if you've ever raised children, you know about this very well. Um, when, when Lauren and I were young parents, younger parents, um, I was just shocked that one of my first, one of my child's first words was, any clue? No. no. <laughs> That's right. I could not believe it that I would say, hey, I want you to go do that. She would look back at me. No. And I remember going. This is way backwards here. The authority is like, I mean. And I think I did say, who do you think you are? (laughs) Parents, you know all about this. You know what? God knows all about this. Because sin at its essence is a rejection of his law. God says, do this, don't do this. And we, his creation, look back at him and say, no. Well, sin is a reach for autonomy. It's a reach for autonomy. It says, I'm my own person. I can make my own decisions. I want to be my own master. So it's this self-determinism type of autonomy. I can determine what I want to do with my own life. I don't know who you think you are telling me what to do. I'm not under your authority. I'm autonomous. I make my own decisions. I'm a self-governing person. Well, that's where the lie of the enemy and the lie and deceptiveness of sin really comes full circle. Romans 6, Paul teaches us that you're actually slaves of the one that you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. We are slaves of the one that we obey, either slaves of sin, which leads to death, or slaves of obedience, which lead to righteousness. We notice um, the autonomy in the Genesis account after Adam and Eve ate from the tree. They recognized their naked, uh, their nakedness and they, and they were ashamed. So what did they do then? Did they run back to their creator and say, oh, God, we messed up. We, please help us. We, oh, we, we ate of the tree. You told us not to eat up. No. That's not what they did. They continued 
in autonomous self-governing. Do you see it? There's so many little statements they made for themselves clothing. They hid themselves among the trees. They deflected responsibility themselves and blamed each other. There's so much autonomous behavior that happens because sin is a spiral, it's a downward spiral. And once it's begun, it's, it's on its track. Sin at its core is a, is a reach for autonomy. And then lastly, on this one, it's a reduction of God's character. Reduction of His character. I want you to think about this for a minute. Sin lies to you. It says to you that God is not good. God is not good. He may be powerful. Like He's big, I get that, but He's not Good. He cannot be trusted. He's trying to keep you from fully experiencing joy. Once again, I know this one well from my children. Um, you know, I give simple instructions to my kids like, please don't play in the street. Right? And the, the, the rationale behind that command is... I love you and I don't want you to die. <laughs> right? So here's the command. Don't play in the street. But where do you think my kids want to play? In the street. Why is it so fun to play in the street? I don't get it. The, the thought process must go something like this. He doesn't want me to play in the street. That must be the best place to play. <laughs> oh, well, he's trying to keep us from really enjoying the street. We should get our stuff and go play in the street. The lie is that God is not good. That he's trying to keep us from enjoying life. You know, I know you really want that, but I don't want you to have it. That is not the way our father works. In fact, Jesus talked about a contrast between us as fathers and him as the father. And Jesus said, you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more so the father? But we learn here about Satan that he's a liar and a murderer. In fact, Jesus gave us that really clearly in John chapter 8, verse 44. He said he was a murderer from the beginning. And that when he speaks lies, he speaks from his native language. In fact, he doesn't even know how to speak the truth. Satan is a liar and a murderer. Listen to this church. Let me tell you something. I need you to hear this. Look right here. Every sin can be traced to a lie believed. Every sin can be traced back to a lie believed. The tempter here starts in with just some subtle deceptions. I don't know if you see it. If you read carefully, you'll see it. He starts by saying, did God really say... You shouldn't eat of every tree in the garden. It's it's like a, well, no, God didn't say that. He actually said we could eat of every tree in the garden, except for this one. And there's all kinds of things to observe here. I don't know if you saw where Eve added some things, like she actually added, he he said, neither can we even touch it. Well, God never said that. But this is what, what we do is we usually add to his rules. 
Well, then Satan comes straight at it. He says, you will not die. But God knows. He knows something. And if you eat of it, you're going to be like him. He's keeping you from that. He doesn't want you to be like him. What we see is that sin at its core is a reduction of the character of God. We can, we can go real deep into this, but um, just take a look at your Bible really quickly. I want you to see something. In Genesis 2, you see the, the created account, the, the account of creation. God's been, he's been creating and, and we see God. He's named 14 times as the Lord God. Do you all notice that? Capital L-O-R-D, God. The Lord God. Well, in Hebrew, this is Yahweh El. Yahweh El. Yahweh El. The Lord God. Here's what it means. El is Elohim. It's, it's, it's a reference to God's power, His creative ability, His ability to do whatever He wants to do. Nothing can stop Him. He's all-powerful. Yahweh is a name for God that connotes His character. What kind of God is this? Who is he and what kind of God is he? And what we discover in the, the, in the essence of Yahweh is that he is a good God. He wants good. And so we should read the creation story. Every time you see Lord God, you could read it. The good, all powerful. The good, all powerful. The good, all powerful. 14 times through Genesis chapter 2, we see he's good and he's all powerful. Good, all powerful. When Satan comes on the scene. In chapter 3, look at it. Now the serpent was more crafty than other, any other beast of the field that the good, all-powerful God had made. And he said to the woman, look what he says. Did God actually say? Here's what he does is he takes God and he reduces his character from being good and powerful to just being powerful. God's powerful. He's not out for your good. He may be able, but he doesn't really care for you. This is a reduction of the character of God. The first thing we need to know is that sin is against God. And although sin has effects all around us, the main offense is an affront to God himself. And this should be our chief concern. So let me ask you bluntly, is there any sin in your life that you refuse to repent of? Is there any sin in your life that you say to God, I know you said don't do that. I just don't care. Maybe you're not speaking those words, but your actions are. If there's anything like that in your life, then repent. God is holy. And our sin is against him. Now is the time to repent. Stop rejecting him. Stop reducing him. Stop rebelling against him. Stop reaching for your own autonomy. God is good. He's powerful. And his law is good and right. It's for you. Secondly, the anatomy of sin. Sin has collateral damage. Um, the story that comes to my mind with this one is the story of... Um, in Joshua chapter 7 of Achan, the people of Israel had conquered the great city of Jericho and God had commanded them, don't take anything. Just kill everybody. Don't take anything. Don't, 
Don't steal any of their stuff. Don't get their gold. Don't take their clothing. I know it's tempting because this is a wealthy city, but leave it all. And everybody obeyed except for Achan. Achan saw some gold, some silver, some things he wanted. He took those things, went back to his tent, dug a little hole, buried them, covered them. He immediately, after he sinned, went to hiding and covering. Same story, isn't it? But you know what? Just as in the garden, there's no hiding from God. And as the people of Israel went in Joshua 7 to fight their next battle, it was a puny little town. And they got whipped. And Joshua was like, what happened, Lord? You promised us that wherever we place our feet, we would, we would have victory. What's going on? And God says, there's sin in the camp. One man's sin. 37 people died. And all of Israel faced a devastating defeat. Our sin doesn't just hurt us. There's collateral damage. It hurts others. And it hinders our relationships. So sin is against God and it turns me against others. Adam and Eve went immediately from hiding and covering. From shame to blame. Do you see that? When God said, did you eat of the tree? I told you not to eat of it. Did you eat of it? Real simple answer, Adam. Yes. That woman that you gave me. Wow. That was bold. Right? It's not just her fault. It's your fault. That was bold. You know, I often say in marriage counseling with folks this truth, and I hope you hold on to this. You are first a sinner. And second, sinned against. You are first a sinner and second sinned against. The, the effects of our sin hurt people. It hurts one another. And, and there's tension that happens in relationship between us. And we are first sinners who need mercy. Right? But God graciously gives and forgives. And so then we who have received mercy can now give and offer that same grace and mercy and forgiveness to those who have wounded and hurt us. But we tend to hide. We tend to, to cover. We tend to blame. I want to ask you, how do you hide? How do you hide from people? When you're hurting, when you're broken, when you're in need, how do you hide? I would suggest to you that the most popular mask worn today is this one. I'm fine. How you doing? I'm fine. This is the most socially acceptable non-answer mask. To be fair, probably when people ask you that, how you doing, they actually prefer you put on the mask. Don't answer the question. Like, uh, I found myself caught in that situation. Hey, man, how you doing? And then they start talking. You're like, oh, like he's going to answer. Okay. Okay. Um, 
This is a way that we hide. There's hurt, there's wounds, there's damage, but we hide. We, we cover in other ways. You know, maybe, maybe you know, there's, there's issues going on, but you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm doing really good over here in this. I'm, I'm, I'm really serving in that way. I'm helping these people out. I'm being really neighborly here. And so I'm covering. I'm, I'm making sure to, to cover my issues. Or when all that doesn't work, we just say, it's not my fault. It's their fault. It's his fault, her fault. We just blame. Point that finger, man. It just. And right now, this one is really happening, right? Lots of, lots of hate in our world today. I just want you to know all sin is traced back to a lie believed. A lie believed. And only the truth, only honesty can set us free from that. So um, real relationship, we started with, with that and um, I'm driving this home. Here it is. Real relationship is a hunger that will always be out of reach as long as we wear a mask and pretend we've got it all together. Make sense? The real relationship we actually long for will always be out of reach as long as we keep pretending. When people come to church, they don't need to encounter seemingly perfect people, right? Nobody needs that. What they need is to meet people who bring their mess to Jesus and find mercy in him. What they need are other broken people who are being healed by the gospel of Jesus. Only truth and honesty creates the kind of environment that uh, allows for what Paul commands in, in Romans 12, 3, when he says, let love be genuine. Notice he doesn't say love people genuinely or be loved by people genuinely. The way he words it. Puts a, puts a requirement on both the lover and the recipient of love to be genuine. If I don't genuinely love you, love's not genuine. If you're putting on a front and a face, I can't genuinely love you. Let me tell you three quick things about honesty. Honesty allows people to truly know you. Honesty allows people to truly know you. They, they like what they see, right? But they aren't seeing the real you. They're only seeing the version of you that you want them to see. Real relationships will only go as deep as they are honest. Real relationships only go as deep as they are honest. Secondly, honesty lets people actually love you. Here's the crazy irony. When we put on the face, when we wear the mask and pretend all is well, people love and we still walk away saying, if they knew who I really was. We can't receive their love because we're pretending. So honesty actually lets people love you. And thirdly, honesty lets people carry your burdens in prayer and then come alongside and help. But if they don't know you have a problem, how can they help? Why would they pray? What do they pray? When we're honest with others and we say, I'm really struggling. This is hard. This is a heavy time for me. I need some help here. Would you, would you help me? In that situation, we get to receive the love of caring people. Through prayer, through support. So sin is against God and sin has collateral damage. Let me wrap things up for us this morning with two 
really important truth. So if you haven't listened yet, listen now. Sin is deadly. What we learn from Genesis 2 and 3 is that God came out guns blazing. You know, as a dad, sometimes I say, hey, if you do this, I'm going to, and I think, okay, I think in layers, you know, like, okay, what am I actually going to do? Like, uh, it's going to be bad. <laughs> you know, that's a general one, right? Or then I'll say, if you do that, I'm going to, you, you're going to go to the corner. Or if you do that, it's going to be whip city, you know, something like that, right? <laughs> but God comes right out with, with all of it, the nuclear package. If you eat of this tree, you will die. In James 1, verses 14 and 15, it says essentially that, that sin is conceived in us when, uh, we're, when we're tempted, we're lured away by our own evil desires, right? But then that desire, when it's conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings death. And what we see is that sin is deadly. Adam and Eve, from the moment they sinned, their physical bodies began to die. They were going to live forever, right? That's how we were made. We were made for eternity. But their physical bodies began to die. And then death became inevitable for all human beings. We're we're more and more aware of death today than I think I've ever been in my life. To, To turn on the news, which I can't hardly watch anymore. And to see the the death toll, the death ticker on the side. It's just tough to see, right? We're more aware of death right now than than I've ever been. And somehow we still manage to push it aside and live today as if death is not real. But a deeper death occurred that day. Not just physical death, but a spiritual death. They, They experienced separation from God. Man would no longer walk in the garden in the cool of the day with God Almighty like they had. There's now a gulf of separation between man and God. God is too holy to be with sinful man. Through Adam's sin, the Bible says all men die. We are all sinners by our nature and by our actions. There's no denying it. Every one of us has sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. And God has decreed that the wages of our sin is death. Now let me give you the good news. In this text, in Genesis chapter 3, we see the beauty and the power of the gospel of Jesus. Do you see it? We didn't read it together. But the truth is this. Satan will be crushed. And sin will be covered. In the middle of God's curse to the serpent, the first glimmer of hope in a very dark season in human history is given. It's the promise of the offspring of the woman. Genesis 3.15. Look at it with me. God is cursing the serpent. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and... And her offspring. Now look at the very next word. It's a pronoun. And it's the masculine singular pronoun. What is it? He. Ooh, that's specific. 
The Holy Spirit was specific when he inspired that pronoun. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Let me tell you, he in this passage is Jesus Christ. Thousands of years later at the cross, Jesus put death to death. He was buried. He was bruised by the enemy. But it was actually through the cross that Jesus put our enemy under his feet, right? Satan will ultimately be crushed. You know, we meet Satan three chapters into the Bible and we see Satan's end, his final demise, three chapters from the end of the Bible. That's pretty cool, isn't it? Genesis 3, Revelation 20. Our enemy is thrown into the lake of fire. Satan will ultimately be crushed. The war has been won. We are messengers of this good news. It's almost like checkmate, right? Checkmate. I'm not a chess player, but this illustration, I love it. God has said checkmate. And now the enemy is still going, oh my, well, if I move here, huh, maybe I move there. Oh, that's not going to work. Maybe if I move, oh, and we're living in that moment. We're living in the already and the not yet. Satan will be crushed. But there's more good news. Your sin and mine can be covered by God. Look at verse 21, Genesis 3:21. Verse 20 actually. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And now verse 21. And the Lord God, look who who is it? The Yahweh El, the good all-powerful God. He made for Adam and his wife garments of what? Skins and clothed them. Now listen. This is powerful. The gulf of separation that started in the garden with Adam has been crossed by Jesus. He came to us. Our feeble attempts to hide and cover our sin always fall short in God's eyes. There's no hiding. There's no covering. There's no secrets with God. How ridiculous is it that when God came to the garden, they went and hid behind the bushes? Like, let's be real. That's laughable. There's no hiding from God. And there's no covering that we can provide for our sin. But God steps in. And in Genesis 3.21, the Lord God made coverings for them from the skins of animals. So get this. The first sin was covered by God through sacrifice. The death that Adam and Eve deserved is poured out on a substitute. An animal dies in the place of Adam and Eve. And what they had tried to cover, God covers. Don't you see it? This is the shadow. It's the, it's the forerunner of a better substitute. An even greater substitute. A great and forever sacrifice. The Lord Jesus. The death that we deserve from our sin. He endured at the cross. He was crushed for our iniquity. And in Jesus, all of your sin can be covered. All of it. 
covered forever. Scripture actually says that through his blood we will be washed white as snow. That our sins removed from us as far as the east is from the west. So put all your hope in him. Only in Christ, only in Christ will God forgive sin. But our enemy has been crushed and our sin can be covered in Jesus. So God's calling us into real relationship with him, right? And with his people. Sin stands in the way of both. Sin breaks down our union with God. It sets us against him and it turns us against one another. But Jesus has crushed our enemy. He's covered our sin. He stands ready to forgive and cleanse anyone today. Here's great news. If you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. It's the best news I could ever give you. Everyone listening today is a sinner. The big question is, are you trying to fix it? Are you going to fix it yourself? Or are you going to trust in Jesus alone? And God wants us to know the joy of deep relationships with one another. Brothers and sisters in a family. So are you ready to press into that together? Life groups are getting ready to launch. And here's a great opportunity for you to exercise gospel faith in how we interact with each other.